Good morning. Uh, my name is Thomas. I'm one of the pastors here with the church. If you happen not to know that, maybe you're a, a guest with us today. So if you are, welcome. Uh, again, I'm uh, one of the pastors here. And uh, as I've been uh, preaching uh, lately, we have been working slowly through the book of Ecclesiastes. So we're going to stay there. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes 7 today. So if you have your Bibles, actually, you can go ahead and just jump right in there. You can open up to Ecclesiastes 7. Uh, we'll read from there together. And the sermon will focus on parts of uh, verse 15 down through the end of the chapter. By the way, if you need a Bible, uh, you can raise your hand and we'll make sure one of our ushers get one to you. But it looks like we're okay. All right, so we'll pray here and then, then we'll read together. So Lord, I want to just ask for your help now as we uh, join together around um, this part of Ecclesiastes. I pray simply, Lord, that you would um, uh, help us to hear from you and you would make your word really take deep root in our hearts and, and spring up to um, a life that's, that's well-lived, a life that uh, is pleasing to you, is glorifying to you, and is full of joy that you provide. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this is uh, Ecclesiastes 7. We'll start at verse 15. The writer says, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise, and uh, it gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not uh, take, take, take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. While adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Amen. Well, now, uh, for the sake of here this message this morning, we're not going to go into really great detail about every sentence in the passage here, but I do want to focus on at least one point uh, that the writer, I think, wants to emphasize. Um, and that comes from verses 20 and 29. And that is, God made man upright, but we have sought out many schemes. We've schemed against God's good designs. There's not a righteous person on earth who does good all the time and never sins. I think that's a, a point that the writer wants to emphasize here. I think it's a, a point that the book itself, Ecclesiastes, 
um, emphasizes at various, par- uh, uh, various parts. The writer has alluded to this in the past chapters. Um, and in the next chapter, in chapter 8, he's going to use some heavy language there. He's going to say that, that human hearts are full of evil and madness. That's chapter 8, verse 3. And I think it, this is a point of emphasis really throughout the Bible. Throughout the Bible, we're, we're confronted many times by the, the, the simple fact of human sin. Despite the goodness of many, despite the regular acts of goodness of many, still, from a certain perspective, um, Psalm 53 would testify, for example, that there is none who does good, not even one. Everybody does it. Everybody sins. Everybody does it. And this fact of our sin, um, it's really a point of emphasis, really related to the very person and work of Jesus himself and, and, and his gospel message. This is basically the bad news that makes the good news of the gospel so good. Uh, Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. All have sinned. Romans 6.23, here's the good news. The free gift of life, or the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the good news. And you know, um, by the way, eternal life. What does that even mean? Eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's easy to kind of just let that roll off the tongue and not think. What does this mean? Well, in verse 15 of Ecclesiastes 7 here, the writer says, In my vain life I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. A righteous man perishing. A wicked man flourishing. That is not the way it's supposed to work. That is injustice. That's not good. And if you don't like that, then you want eternal life in Christ Jesus. You want that because a huge part of what it means, of what this eternal life in Christ Jesus means, is that that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. Eternal life in Christ Jesus means in part that it's life in the eternal kingdom of God in which Jesus has rooted out all sin. That's a major part of what is good about the good news of the gospel. It's that while everybody does it now, everybody sins now, then nobody will. Which means that there will be none of this. None of this, none of this wicked people prospering while everybody else or many others suffer. Gone. And of course it is true right now that everybody does it. Everybody sins. And the writer is going to give us an example here in verse 22. He says, your, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So it gets personal. You know in your heart that you have cursed others. So you curse anyone lately? You think about current events here. You curse anyone in the Black Lives Matter movement lately? You curse anybody in the law enforcement community lately? Think about um, the presidential race. You curse anybody uh, in the presidential race or in politics lately? How about your workplace? How about your, your home? How about your Facebook posts? 
cursing anybody lately, you know in your heart that you yourself have many times cursed others. You're not so righteous that you've done good and you've never sinned. And again, I think this is at least uh, one point of emphasis that the, the writer has for us in this passage. Now, the writer really has tasked himself with a huge goal in Ecclesiastes. Um, We see this uh, back in chapter 1, in verse 13 there in chapter 1, he says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And in all of his searching, the writer is often left confused, is often left just frustrated, scratching his head, and a major reason why that is is that what he sees to be generally true is not always true. Not always. Uh, Verse 15, again, is a prime example of that. A person person perishes in spite of his righteousness. It should not be that way. And I mean, if you think about it, I mean, it seems like somebody who is working hard to do good, working hard to, to, to do right, to be upright, it seems like that person... It should go well with them. It seems like it should always go well with that person. And actually, uh, the wisdom literature that we have in the Bible, uh, that that would be books like Ecclesiastes, books like Proverbs, the book of Job. These are uh, wisdom, the wisdom genre in Scripture. Generally speaking, these wisdom books, generally speaking, they're going to say that living the righteous life is again, generally speaking, going to lead to a more healthy, a more prosperous life. But not always. It just doesn't always work that way. And that is terribly confusing and terribly frustrating for the writer. And I think we can feel that in our lives as well. And so he wrestles, like so many of us, with this classic question of, of why on earth are bad things happening to good people? How is it that a person could suffer in his righteousness? In other words, in spite of his righteousness, how is it that he could suffer? I mean, didn't God promise at different points, many points it seems in Scripture, didn't he promise that if we will obey him, he'll bless us? I mean, didn't he say that? Or how is it that a person could prosper in their wickedness? How could a person prosper in spite of his evil doing? Hasn't God promised at many points in Scripture that if we would reject his ways, he's going to punish us? He'll cut us off, a lot of the language is. And uh, yeah, we saw, the, the, we saw the, rest, the, the writer wrestling with this in uh, previous chapters. We're going to see it again in later chapters. He wrestles with this issue a lot. We have it in front of us again in the passage this morning, in verse 15. What in the world is going on? Why is this happening? This is a head-scratcher for the writer. Um, You can see that in verses 23 to 24 again. He's scratching his head. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Scratching his head. But speaking of sin... Speaking of wickedness and righteousness, the, 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 the writer does uh, sort of land on something solid in all of his head scratching. He arrives at at least one solid truth. Surely, the writer says, he has something in mind here that is surely true. He's confident of it. 
And that's significant because, again, in all of this searching that he does throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, he's testing wisdom, he's testing folly, he's trying to figure it out. How, what is, how, what's the sum of life? What is, how does this stuff work out? And right now he's trying to understand why the, why the blessing and the prosperity and long life, why does that not follow a righteous life? And why so often does the opposite happen? And in all of this searching, again, most of the time he's left scratching his head. Again, we saw that in verses 23 to 24. We see it, in, in, I would say, in verse 25. Then again in verse 27, he says, While adding one thing to another, to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, I have not found. So the writer's searching, and he's searching. He can't figure things out. But here, he does land on something solid. So it stands out. Verse 28 again. One man among a thousand... I found. But a woman among all these I have not found. In other words, don't get too uh, set off by that language. Maybe you'd say it differently. But in this context, in the writer's mind, this is him speaking figuratively. This is him speaking uh, in hyperbole. It's his figurative way basically of saying that what he has found for sure is that there really isn't any truly righteous person. There really isn't any truly perfectly righteous people. He's basically underscoring verse 20 again. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And then verse 29 again. See this alone I have found. That God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So that's the one thing that he has found that is sure. He's confident of it. And again, that's significant because more normally, he's scratching his head. More normally, he's confused and he's frustrated. But he's sure of this. He's very confident of this. He wants to emphasize it. And so this really becomes for us kind of what I would call an anchor point of, of sorts. Um, it's, it's an anchor point in the midst of otherwise confusing and repeatedly unanswered questions. If you think about how many uh, questions there are about life that we just simply don't have the answer to these, these questions. Well, here's one thing that we can know for sure. It's something we can actually know for sure. Again, throughout Ecclesiastes, he's wrestling with these questions. He's coming up confused and frustrated by the lack of answers. He's able to give us things that are generally true, but he's really, it's hard to give what's always true, what's absolutely true. Generally true, but not always absolutely true. But along the way, the writer does sort of drop these anchor points of answers, of some answers, some things that he does intend to communicate are, you know what, this isn't just generally true, this is always true. This is absolute truth. Um, I don't know a whole lot about rock climbing, but as I understand rock climbing, um, as a climber will kind of head up the, the, the face of a cliff, he'll put in occasionally these, uh, yeah, here's a person or somebody doing it. He will put in uh, a few anchors into the rock. And so he'll tie his rope to that. And so uh, really if he would fall, he's only going to fall so far as his rope to that anchor point. So he's not going to fall all the way to the ground. And in between those anchor points, the rope kind of hangs loose. Again, I don't know a ton about rock climbing, but I think that's how it works. Um, well, a bit like that. There are these 
anchor points, I think, in Ecclesiastes. These are things that the writer intends to communicate, not just as sort of general truth, but, but he wants us to know that they are always true. And then in between those anchor points, he, he offers all sorts of kind of counsel that is generally true. You can mostly think that uh, follow the best you know God's designs. These things are mostly going to work out the way that they're laid out. But not always. There's some flexibility. There's some give. There's some sway in the rope in between those anchor points. But we can always fall back on those anchors for stability. And so, for example, some of these anchor points. Uh, chapter 2, verse 24. He says, There's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. That's an anchor point. Do that. Find enjoyment in your toil. That's an anchor point. Uh, or chapter 3, verse 17. Chapter 3, verse 17, he says, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. That's an anchor point. That's going to happen. God will judge. Or at chapter 5, verse 7, he says, God is the one you must fear. God is the one you must fear. That's an anchor point anchor point for us. And there are several more of these uh, throughout the book. Um, we have one here in chapter 7. And again, it's this. It's, it's that while God created humanity upright, we've sinned. God's original creation design was that humanity was good. Uh, chapter uh, verse 29 there, it's very likely uh, a reference back to the early parts of the Bible. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, we see God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. But then, Genesis chapter 3. And humanity disobeyed God. Humanity sinned. Scheming, we might say. Scheming to be like God. Scheming to be wise like God. Scheming to be like God in these ways that we ought not be. Uh, Genesis 3 talks about humanity sin. And in the, the, the wake of all of that, now all of humanity is plunged into this sort of different natural state than it was intended to be. So since Genesis 3, humanity is, as Ephesians 3 says, by nature we are children of wrath. By nature. And uh, John 3, a lot of 3's here. John 3 alludes to this, this nature. John 3 verse 36 John says this, he says, whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. And remember how awesome that eternal life is. None of this garbage of uh, the wicked prospering and others suffering. Whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. Whoever does not obey Jesus shall not see life. That's not for those who are not trusting Jesus. But the wrath of God, John says, remains on them. The wrath of God remains on him. Well, if it remains on a person, that means it's already on the person, and it needs to be removed. Right? Well, there's good news in, in that case. It actually can be removed because of Jesus, obeying Jesus, believing in Jesus, trust, excuse me, trusting in Jesus. And so, um, again, in all of this confusion, lack of answers that, we're, that we see really throughout Ecclesiastes, here's one objective anchor point. And it's that the, this thing that the writer says he's sure of, and again it is that there isn't a righteous person on earth who does good sort of continually and never sins. It's that God made humanity upright, but we have devised many, many schemes. 
But it still leaves questions. still leaves questions as to why exactly, um, uh, as he points out again in verse 15, why are all the bad things happening to good people and vice versa? And the writer really doesn't have an answer for that here. He's just left scratching his head. And to a degree, that's where he leaves us too. We don't really know exactly why. We can, we can take some guesses. Um, but what then should be our response to these things? In light of these things, how should we respond? Does the author give us any counsel? And I think he does. Verses 16 to 17. Um, you can look there again. Verses 16 to 17. The writer again gives us some counsel. He says, be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So, um, bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. Not sure what's going on. What should I do? Don't be overly righteous. Don't be overly wicked. Okay? What in the world does that mean? Um, Often, I think, a misinterpreted passage. It is a bit sticky. Uh, Here's my best stab at it. Um, Overly wicked. Don't be overly wicked, he says. Overly wicked, that could be translated to be very wicked. In other words, I think the counsel here is that we, would, we wouldn't sort of give up, kind of, and say, well, hey, you know what, you know, no matter what, I'm a sinner. The Bible says it right here. There's nobody who, who doesn't sin, so what can I really do? I mean, what can God really expect of me? Um, who cares, really? Um, I'll sin just a little bit, whatever, not that big of a deal. Or, you know what? Like I say, I'm a sinner, what can I do? I'm just going to forget about trying to pursue righteousness altogether, and I'm just going to jump into wickedness. That's where I'm going. I'm just going to give up on trying to be righteous. Well, no, that's not what he said. The, the writer's cautioning against that. Don't be overly wicked. Don't do that. Also, on the flip side, don't be overly righteous. Overly righteous, what does that mean? Well, one thing that it does not mean... One thing it does not mean is that we would sort of um, take sin lightly. Uh, maybe there's this, there's this middle road, road, this kind of, this like average, partly good, partly bad, and we'll try to hit that middle road. Again, everybody does it. Everybody sins. I mean, nobody's perfect. You know, what's the big deal? That's not what that means. Um, I think to be overly righteous means... Uh, as one commentator gave this uh, little label, to be super righteous. I appreciate that. Not so much self-righteous. That has some different connotations, but super righteous. I'm going to be super righteous. So that would be to sort of dig in your heels, sort of stir up willpower and try, try harder, harder, do better, do more good, be more righteous. That's kind of the attitude. And, and really, I think that dove, dovetails very well with uh, some of the things that Pastor Brett has been speaking to us uh, in his recent sermons. Um, it's, it's a caution. Don't be overly righteous. This is a caution against this anxious toiling that Pastor Brett has talked about. It's a caution against fleshly striving. Uh, striving in which you're, you're self-dependent, you're self-reliant, you're self-sufficient. All these things to, to do the right thing or to do the right thing better. I'll just stop doing that and I'll start doing this. Or I'll, I'll, I'll start doing this and I'll stop doing that. I'll just make this commitment and I'll do it. Let's go for it. And, and in, in the mindset in, in that is that in some way you can maybe affect your future 
that your future would be a little bit more prosperous. If I can just work harder, my future will be a little bit better. Well, don't do that, the writer says. I mean, he's made clear everybody sins. So really, actually at one level, you really can never claim any grounds for really deserving really any measure of well-being in life, no matter how good you are, no matter how hard you try. So that's a, that's a, a no-go. But more to the point, I think, the writers made this clear as well, that far too often people suffer in spite of their righteousness. Not because they were wicked, but in spite of their, their doing right. So there's no way that you can work hard enough to be righteous enough to do enough good to sort of guarantee that you're going to create this prosperous future for yourself, or more ultimately, that you're somehow going to get a pass on, on Judgment Day. Now, of course, don't get me wrong on this. I mean, uh, uh, don't hear me say then that, oh, well, I guess we shouldn't aim to do right then. Again, that's not what's being said here. Of course we should aim to do right. Of course we should work hard to do good. Um, I think that's clear from many parts of Scripture. Jesus himself says that our righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. Um, Jesus said we, we should be holy and we should be perfect, as God himself is holy and perfect. But there's a, there's a sort of way to, to, to strive for that perfection that's not this kind of super-righteous, self-dependent striving. And part of what that means, I think, part of what that means would be to strive with right expectations. Work hard, but manage your expectations. Work, toil, do good, but don't expect that you're going to be perfect. Don't expect that. You do that and you will, in the language of verse 16, destroy yourself. Another way to uh, actually translate that destroy yourself could be uh, to be confounded. Um, to be disappointed. You live life expecting to be perfect, you will be disappointed. You're going to have a disappointed, unhappy life. You're going to be constantly disappointed because you're going to be constantly coming up short. Um, I was a linebacker in football up through college, and um, so that's on the defensive side of the ball, if you don't know that. So we often made it a goal, we made it an aim to work our butts off so that we would not allow the opponents to score any points. It was always a goal, but we knew, we didn't expect that every game, in every game, every team would score zero points. Um, And so, you know, the big things, if we came off with a win, great, we were happy with that. We didn't stress out too much about the fact that we weren't actually perfect. Because we, our expectations were managed. It didn't mean we didn't work like crazy to, have a, uh, to shut out the opponent. But we didn't expect that it was going to happen in a way that would bend us out of shape. And um, so, again, there's not a person on earth who does good and never sins. You're going to fail. So get comfortable with that idea. You're going to fail. Um, And even when, by God's grace and by God's power, you really do good. Again, have right expectations. The writer is clear again that even righteous people are going to suffer in spite of their righteousness. In spite of their doing good. And so, be careful here not to sort of fret that, oh my goodness, God must be, um, I must be out of God's favor. 
God must be mad at me and he's punishing me and, and I must have sinned and messed up. You know, maybe you're suffering, you're failing um, because you sin. Don't, don't have that swirling around in your brain either. No, you know what? What usually is the case, most often uh, the issue is simply that we live in a crummy, broken world. And that happens. That's life. The world is broken. It's full of, of broken people, full of people that are often scheming against God's good designs. A broken world that, that just does not work the way it is supposed to work according to God's initial upright design. Even righteous people will suffer in spite of their righteousness. So do strive to do good. No doubt. That is a clear call of the gospel. Do strive to do good. But do that humbly. Do that thinking like the Apostle Paul. If there's a man who drove, I don't know what the word is. If there's a man man who ran after righteousness, who ran after doing good, it is the Apostle Paul. And he says, I am what I am by the grace of God. He says, I work harder than everyone else, yet not I, but the grace of God inside of me. Paul said, strive, toil, with all the energy that God himself powerfully works inside of us. Work hard, do right, do good, but do that with the heart of Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, verse 21. It's a benediction, and it says this. May God equip you with everything good that you may do his will. May God equip you to do his will. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. So, so work hard, do good, yes, but trust God to equip you. Trust God, in fact, to work in you the very things that are pleasing to him. And trusting that he'll do that in you, in fact, because of Jesus. Paul, uh, the, 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 the passage there says these things come through Jesus Christ. And so insofar as, as you are united to Jesus by faith then God the Holy Spirit will fill you, he'll work in you, he'll work through you to will and to work according to his good designs. That is for you in Jesus. And really this is actually, I think, at least part of what it means to fear God. Fear God. That's really the the positive counsel here that the writer gives us in uh, this section of, of the book. He said what not to do, don't be overly wicked, don't be overly righteous, but then more positively, okay, what to do? Fear God. That comes in part of verse 18. It's essentially that we would fear God. Now, I think here to fear God in, 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 this, uh, in light of these things we've been talking about, to fear God, it's essentially to, to trust that God's commands are good. Trust that they're good for, for you. Trust that they're good for your community. And, and then Work hard to do good. Work hard to do right. Work hard to obey God's commands. And as you do that, number one, do that praying for God's help in that. Praying that he would establish your work. Praying that he'd work in you that which is pleasing in his sight. Praying that he'll, that he'll will and he'll work for his good ends. And number two, we're doing that trusting that God is going to work it out in the end, actually. We're trusting that in the end, God is going to set everything straight. And as we're trying to be righteous, praying for his help, 
and there's all kinds of garbage in our way, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. And this guy over here is sinning, but he's prospering, and I'm trying to do well, and I'm suffering. Trust that God's going to work it out in the end. That's a part of what it means to fear God here. In fact, in the end, the righteous do get prosperity, while the wicked will get what's coming to them. That will get worked out. You can uh, recall, I quoted this earlier, chapter 3, verse 17. God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. That time is coming. And from chapter 8, verse 13, the writer speaks of that judgment and he says, uh, related to that judgment, it will not be well for the wicked. It will not be well for them. In the end, justice will be served. That's another anchor point, by the way. I touched on that earlier. That's an anchor point. Justice will be served. And to fear God in light of that judgment um, and also in light of Jesus, it's, it, it is to strive hard to do right, knowing, again, that your righteousness is no guarantee of a flourishing life here and, need, here and now. But you are guaranteed a flourishing eternal life because of Jesus. I'm going to say that again. Your righteousness is no guarantee of a flourishing life here and now. But you are guaranteed a flourishing eternal life because of Jesus' righteousness. Okay, and knowing that, knowing that that's true, it's another anchor point, by the way. Another anchor point. Knowing that that's absolutely true. It just will give us a, a certain amount of courage as we step through life. It's going to give us a certain amount of boldness, a certain amount of humility, a certain amount of peace as we step through these days that are often confusing, are often frustrating, do often leave us scratching our heads. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for um, a chance to uh, mill around here in this part of Ecclesiastes. And I would um, just reiterate what I prayed earlier, and that is that you would help us to hear your word this morning, and that you would make your word to take deep root in our hearts, and it would spring up to a life that is well lived. In Jesus' name, amen.